We all hate war. Well, let me qualify that. There are some people, for one reason or another, historically, as well as today, that don't hate war. For some reason, they're warlike, aggressive, have grievances, justify. But I would say uh, most of us, civil people, despise war and everything it stands for. So why would any decent person go to war? The only answer is because you have no choice. It's a last resort. If you're attacked, your family is in danger, it's called self-defense. We all hate it, but there's no choice when someone's threatening you but to go to war. In other words, it's imposed on us. So every person of any morality or ethics, any standard and values, will say the same thing. No, I don't want war. The only reason I go to war is because I have to protect myself. But then what does war achieve? Is it just to Eliminate the threat, the enemy? It's more than that. When you have no choice and you need to go to war, war becomes the only way to achieve peace and harmony. Because as long as you don't deal with the enemy, you're going to have a situation that you'll continue to be at war. It just may be extended it's just like an infection in the body. You don't do anything and it festers, it will turn into a cancer. So please join me as Israel is at war. And in general about all wars, in a critical discussion titled, When War is Peace. Hi, this is Simon Jacobson. We'll be discussing in the present circumstances when war is peace. This program is dedicated by Moshe Dubov in loving memory of his mother, Basia Bas Moshe, whose yard site is on the 19th of Kislev. May her neshama, may her soul have an aliyah be elevated. When war is peace. All of us despise war. The bloodshed, the violence, the pain, the loss, the deaths, the carnage. I mean, who in their right mind would ever want war? I should qualify that there are people, clearly in history, as well as today, that for one reason or another, I don't want to think that they're wired that way, but whatever circumstances led, they're warlike. They like war. 
I'm sure they don't like to be killed. But they like war, whether it's for conquest, for control, for an ideology, however it's justified. But there are people like that. You know, I'm sure you meet people at work. They like to argue. Now, I'm not suggesting argument means war. But it's the same idea. Most of us don't, why would, why would we like to argue? We don't like confrontation. And I'm not talking about the fear of confrontation. We want to be pleasers and we, want, we don't stand up for ourselves due to lack of self-confidence or insecurity and so on. But in general, what's the need? Why? why? It's unpleasant. And if you can get by without compromising yourself in a peaceful way, whether it's through conversation or it's ignoring something in certain circumstances, that's the best. I would think that most decent people would prefer and opt for that, opt for that approach. So I think we can all agree that most of us, at least, war, battle, and I'm talking about the most extreme form of it, where you're actually going to war, where there's life and death at stake, and people will be hurt and killed, including civilians, including innocent people, that most of us, that would not ever be our first choice. So then why do people go to war? Why do you find that decent people, civil people, people of morals and ethics, will go to war? The only answer is, because the other option is worse. And the classic example, of course, is self-defense. If you're attacked, your family is threatened, and it's pretty clear it's not an illusion, you will do whatever is possible if you're a responsible person to protect them. And you will shoot first before that person shoots. And if you don't, you're not being responsible. It's actually in the name of peace that you're doing it. In other words, it's imposed upon us. We wouldn't choose it, but when there's no choice, and everything and all other options have been exhausted, that's what you do. Which goes back to the very concept that this world has nefarious, toxic, aggressive and violent individuals or collectives that for whatever reason feel that they want to attack you. What did the Jewish people do to the Germans, to the Nazis? What did they do? Did they attack them? Did they, do it? Did they abuse them? But in the irrationality and the obscene rationality of anti-Semitism, you can justify anything. The Jews didn't even expect what, would ha- what happened would happen. That's why they didn't protect themselves. That's why they didn't leave. And then they were mercilessly attacked. I know I'm using most, maybe most extreme example of all. And it comes down to what? What did they do? Did they threaten to take away part of Germany? Did they want to secede? Did they want control of any particular economy they break laws so at that point obviously the Jews did not have the option to go to war they were the victims in a real way they were isolated demonized completely marginalized and ultimately taken away to concentration camps and murdered But if they had the capacity, when you see such an enemy, obviously you do everything possible. Not because you want war, not because you like blood, God forbid. So that's the most classic example, self-defense. 
There could be other examples that people go to war. I'm not justifying it. I'm just, you know, self-defense, I think we all can understand. But you have ideologies. People think that someone's a threat to them, ideologically. And they feel that they need to conquer them, or humiliate them, or destroy them. This has been the justification of many warmongers throughout history who felt that their nation was superior, they wanted the other people's, the other nations' resources, and they went to war. Can you find some truth to some of their grievance or some of their reasoning? I'm sure. But that's not the war that we're talking about that we can say, oh, okay, let's do that. Because who gave you a right? How do you even know? Are you speaking the name of God that you know your ideology has to destroy any other ideology? But I don't want to digress. I want to go back to, so why would we go to war? Only because it's a last resort. And in that case, war becomes necessary, not optional. It's not like, oh, I have no choice, I'll do it. It becomes necessary because it's been proven that if you don't go to war, you will be hurt. You will be killed. So there's a very powerful concept. It it's originates in Talmudic literature, but it's cited especially in Hasidic thought, the mystical thought. It talks about negative forces. And the expression, I'll say it in Hebrew, then I'll translate. Shvirosan zuhi takanosan. Their destruction is their repair. There are things that when you destroy them, you actually repair them. The classic example is if an illness takes hold, God forbid, in a human body, and the illness is one that is threatening the life, the health of the person, so destroying it is actually repair. It's repairing the person, of course, and also even repairing this infection because its purpose is to destroy when you eliminate it, you're actually fulfilling even its objective. Let's talk it from a biological point of view to build up stronger immunity, maybe to even use that, that, that disease and turn it around and turn it into antibiotic or homeopathy or anything that becomes a healing agent. So it's not just about destroying. The destruction is to repair. Obviously, you have to establish when that's the case. In some cases, repairing or building does not require destruction. But in some cases, it does. When you raise a building, it's a Z. In order to build a better building in its place, someone comes and says, why are you destroying a building? They say, no, we're clearing up. And it's good. from here will we'll sprout something much, much more powerful. So you would say, again, the expression, Caesar amnas livnes. You're destroying in order to build. Or in other words, the destruction is the repair. Now that's only in a case where you've established that that's the only option. It's the last option. So the Kabbalists and mystics talk about good and evil in that context. That evil, like darkness, is only the absence of good. But it takes hold. When it takes hold, it can be extremely destructive. So it's rooted in a fundamental cosmic dissonance between the higher purpose 
of existence and existence itself, which ultimately can create that duality, can create divisiveness and the dissonance that leads to disagreements, to conflicts, to discord, a diversity that will lead to division, to divisiveness, and ultimately war. So let's speak about it in biblical terms. Right in the beginning of the book of Genesis, we're told creation of existence, the story of creation. The world was covered in darkness, it says. Chaos. With the spirit of the divine hovering, then comes the first statement, declaration. God says, let there be light. The first principle of life, you come into a dark world, bring light into the world. A confused world, a world that doesn't see clearly, illuminate it. Okay. All sounds good. As you illuminate it, then you can identify. And that clarity allows you to find the truth, to know what's right, what's wrong. But then comes day two, and it says God separated. He separated. He created the concept of separation. As we're taught, taught that initially there was a seamless unity, and especially light. Light shines, there's a unity. Even though there may be different objects in a room, but when you see the light, you know this is a chair, this is a table, these are the steps. So you know how to utilize and actualize the purpose of all these items. When it's dark, the confusion, and you may bump into something, you may use something for something that for a purpose that, and a utility that deserve, that's reserved for some from other entity. But then day two, God separates, separates between the higher and the lower, between the higher waters and the lower waters. Everything till then was covered in water. We're told. This separation is very fascinating. So the Medrash commentary on the verses explained this is the day where machlekes, conflict was created. Because as soon as you have two entities, there's a separation. Even the separation is a good separation, but the potential of this diversity can create divisiveness. The goal, as we'll discuss, is coordination, is harmony. So it's interesting. On all the days of creation, we're told that God looked at the creation and said, ah, it's good. Day two is lacking that statement. And the reason is because since the potential for conflict was created, you can't call it good. But then comes day three, the creation of vegetation. Vegetation is about perpetuity, where you plant something in the ground and it can grow and grow forever and ever. A tree, its seeds, or create another tree, another tree. Vegetation. And now we're told the vegetation, day three, like number three, is a day of harmony, of coordination. One is singularity, okay? There's no conflict, there's no diversity even. Day two, you have two entities. Think of it like two opinions. And day three, you have the reconciliation. You have the mediation between two things that may have different opinions. And that's the goal. And what happens on day three, we're told? That God looked at existence and said, double good, not just good, a double good, double both quantitatively and qualitatively. Why? It's the good for day two, because now we understand its purpose. And it's, of course, the good of day three, which is the harmony itself. So the harmony essentially 
brings goodness into conflict because we now understand why diversity was created in order to enrich existence. Again, in Kabbalistic terminology, mystical terminology, you have chesed, gvura, teferet. Chesed is the singular's love. Gvura is division. Division, good division, diversity, distinction. But you still have the potential that distinction can cause discord. Comes day three and coordinates and creates what's called in this language is scalolus, interconnectivity. Look at the human body. We have close to 75 trillion cells. So many different systems. In a healthy body, they all work together. But when they don't, it can create tremendous chaos and havoc. Think of the musical notes in a musical composition. In the wrong order, it's just a noise. It's just noise. It's just annoying. In the right combination, music, beautiful music, piece of art. Beauty is harmony within diversity. Or shalom, which is peace. In Hebrew, shalom also means complete. Peace is not just the absence of war. Peace is a whole new entity. It's taking different forces and bringing them together and creating a synergy that's more than the sum of the parts. So then let's then we go back to this idea where destruction is its repair. Because if it's a destructive force, an infection affecting the body, a human being or a group of people threatening, harming other people, not just threatening to harm, but actually harming. So for the good of the organism, last resort, you need to eliminate it. Not because we want to eliminate anything. Not because we want destruction. But it's actually the only way to repair. And hence, war becomes peace. War becomes the only way to peace. Now, of course, there's the option. If you can not destroy the infection, you can heal it. Or you can actually transform it into becoming an ally, then by all means. That's why I say last resort. Now I understand that people will say, well, this argument can be made in both directions if everyone has their grievances. But I think when you sit down and you look at the details, you go back to the root, you can pretty much clarify, especially for people who have some, some intelligence of what is right and what is wrong. This doesn't mean that everybody's perfect. But there are certain principles that we can consider right and wrong. You can also justify Nazi ideology. You can find all kinds of explanations. As they did. They rationalized it that the Jewish people were like an infection. That's how it was explained. And eliminating the infection is good for the Aryan and good for the globe, for the universe. I don't want to even repeat, God forbid, what these people said. So this is the case on a personal level and a collective level. And it's critical to know because this is not about being violent, being aggressive, hurting anyone. It's actually about bringing peace. And the interesting thing, it brings peace also to the people who you had to destroy. That's the key. It's not that you won and you eliminated. When finally Germany and Japan surrendered, unconditional surrender. After much destruction, not only was peace created, these two nations today, our superpowers, have risen, our allies with the allies, with who 80 years ago they were fighting a, a blood war that cost tens of millions of people's lives. So what happened at the end? 
Was it destruction or was it construction? War became peace and created a more peaceful world. Now, would we have preferred that it happened without all that loss? Of course. But it wasn't meant to be. For whatever reason. And the same is true when we're dealing with today. And that's what, when people go to battle, and they know this in their moral conviction, they know, I'm not here to kill anyone. I'm here to bring peace to the world. You forced me into a situation due to different actions. I'm not getting now into those that justify that behavior that led to this war. It's a different discussion, and we've had it. I'm talking about once you understand that, yes, you may have grievances, but there are certain things you just don't do. Yes, there are lines in this world, both in your family, in your community, and also among nations. And no propaganda and no brainwashing and no alternative narratives that obfuscate intentionally and, 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 and to deliberately, eliminate, deliberately exclude certain points are going to make a difference. That's how we clear-headed people try to think. And I understand I can be accused of being as subjective as anyone else. So be it. But I share. I share as I understand it. And yes, at times war becomes peace. And the opposite is also true. If you try to not eliminate and not go to war with something that should be destroyed in order to bring peace, then you're not bringing peace. You may be comfortable. It may look good. You may, you may feel good for a little while. But it's like not attacking an infection in the body. There's no way that is going to stay that way. It will get worse. And then it'll be a lot harder to deal with afterwards. So it's not that it's like two options. It's the only way. See, you can go further and say, not just when war is peace, when the only way to peace is through war. Again, I don't like the word war. I don't even like to say it. But that's why we need to have this context. Now the objective is to make sure that whoever is engaged in the battle, and we're all in some way, some are engaged in physical battle, but there's also the spiritual side and the psychological and the emotional. All of us should have that moral. What are we fighting for? What do we stand for? Because if anything positive comes out of all of this is that crystallized vision and clarity. What are the values? What are the things that we really are ready to fight for? And then we realize where we need to fight and where we need to build. Where the fighting, I should say, leads to building and where the building leads to building. And you need, you need both. That's how it works. You eliminate the elements that are causing destruction. You bring peace. And then you know what happens? Other parts of that element may have taken hostage, may have polluted will also come to your assistance. Think again of the human body. God forbid someone has cancer, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation, or whatever it is that they intervene, you have to kill sometimes good cells with the bad cells. But that's only in order to nourish and empower the rest of the healthy cells to take over. That's the goal. The collateral damage is 
sad and inevitable. You try to minimize it. So what happens is that a destructive element takes control of the, of the entire body, everything like a parasite. So a parasite will take control even of parts of the body and the organism that are not initially your enemy. So now it's all been turned against you. So essentially when you eliminate it, you're not just eliminating it and turning it into an ally. The entire body is freed to be able to be free and to be your source of life and health. The 100 million Germans that, that majority elected a minority called the Nazi Party, the National Socialist Party, I'm not going to say they were all Nazis and that they were all ready to massacre in the most brutal way men, women, and children as the Nazis did. But they did elect them. Two, they did not go to war with them. So you'll say they had no choice. They're under their control. But you know what? Fine, if you're under their control and you can't control it, you're, you're, you end up being part of the problem. Unless you all leave the country. So the many civilians lost... And many of them, I'm sure, fine people were all part of that problem because the parasites took over. They took over the organism called Germany and then the surrounding nations. Besides not many that were complicit directly or indirectly through silence, but also in other ways. Not everybody shot the Jew, but there are other ways that you can kill Jews and cooperate. So that became obvious there was the only way you could not get rid of the infection without dealing with the entire people. If you could, you try to el eliminate the leaders, and hopefully the rest of the people will say, thank God, good riddance. We wish that would happen in Gaza, and over history in general. So these are not easy decisions to be made, but at the heart and core of it comes down to there's a force that, however misguided, whatever justification has become an infection destructive and then war is peace then eliminating a disease is the healthiest thing you can do and we still cry we still cry when you need to surgically remove it or eliminate in some other way that we have to come to this point because our goal is not destruction our goal is building I have no doubt that if we do the right thing and have the strength and the courage to understand when war is peace and when the opposite is also true, when peace could be war, that we will finally prevail, as we always have. And we will usher in a world where there will be no longer war and no longer avarice and no longer conflict, but rather harmony within diversity. No more evil and destruction because the world that we will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And the seamlessness that we spoke about in day one will permeate day two and day three and the rest of the days because we shall see that harmony within diversity, how the different forces all work together and actually enrich and create something far more beautiful, more beautiful tapestry, a more beautiful cosmic symphony than any individual could create on his or her own. May it be quickly, speedily, and painlessly. God bless you.
be well, be healthy. This has been Simon Jacobson, MeaningfulLife.com. We have a special section that's continuously being updated with events, fighting the spiritual war today, which is a historic wake-up call, as I've been speaking about. Please check it out. Subscribe. Subscribe to our growing YouTube channel. Share. Comment. Love to hear your feedback, your thoughts, your comments, your suggestions. Be blessed and be well. Thank you. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.